Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you this morning. So I want to ask that you follow along. Luke 15, you could find it on a tablet or if you have a, a pages version of the Bible in front of you, look, at the, look for the page number for the book of Luke in the table of contents and you will find Luke, turn to chapter 15. While you're turning there, let me just remind everybody that tonight we're going to gather for a second service at 6 o'clock uh, for a time of prayer. The first Sunday of every month, we come together again, and uh, we have a one-hour service from 6 to 7, and we focus mostly on prayer. Uh, we'll have a 15-minute sermon by Andrew Sechrist tonight, and, uh, and then pray a lot together and sing. So, come on back. It'll be right here at 6 o'clock. All right, Luke 15. Are you there? We've got three parables in front of us today. Let me read all three of them to you. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on its, his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together all her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he had squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I should perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father." And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants, one of the servants, and asked what, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, uh, re- has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I want to preach to you this morning on the topic, what heaven celebrates. I want to explore this theme, what heaven celebrates. So please pray with me, and let's get into God's Word this morning. And I ask for your help with your amens and yeses and facts and hallelujahs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word. We ask that as we read it, explore it, study it, as I preach it, that you would help us receive it. Give us ears to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine with me for a moment. Some, some dude was a jerk in high school, but popular. While you were ignored. Now, maybe you were the popular jerk, all right? That's why I said imagine with me for a moment, all right? <laughs> Just track with me here. While you were ignored. While you studied hard... He partied. You tried to live right. You tried to do what was good. And he messed around. You tried to remain celibate. And he seemed to be hanging out with every single woman and leading them astray. Time goes on and you actually marry one of those women. You're an adult now. And you have this deep, secret hatred toward this individual. As time goes on, his partying catches up to him. 
and he ends up with a drug addiction. He loses his life, and you can clearly see somewhat at a distance that he has destroyed his life. And there's a part of you that is satisfied, that is happy. All of a sudden, you're surprised. When he joins your church, starts hanging out, hanging out in your Bible studies and in your small groups, and he's coming around. Not only that, but he seems repentant, clean. Not only that, but the church is celebrating him and talking about how he feels called into ministry. And they, they're, they're, they're putting money down to get an apartment for him. And he wants to go to Bible college, and they take up an offering to pay for Bible college while you've still got your own student loans that you've been paying off. And then they throw this big celebration as he's going to preach his first sermon. And you know who's most excited about his repentance? Your wife. Let me ask you this. Can you celebrate the repentance of someone who has hurt you? I don't just mean like the stereotypical outcast who comes home. I mean somebody who you feel truly hurt by. And they hit rock bottom. And they come back to Jesus. Can you celebrate that? That's the question that we face as we enter into our text this morning. We have at the very beginning tax collectors who show up. Now remember last week, Jesus talked about the cost of discipleship. He ends his, his, his talk with this call, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And immediately the very next verse, who is it that's surrounding Jesus? Who is it that seems to have ears to hear? It is the tax collectors in verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners. Now we have a tendency to romanticize the outcast. We all have a tendency to think, oh, the poor outcast. We want to be about the outcast. And those Pharisees, those high and mighty Pharisees are so mean. Let's be careful before we just romanticize the outcast and just assume that we would be fine with the outcast. Let's talk about the tax collectors a little bit. Who were the tax collectors? Rome, at this time, Rome had dominated Israel. They had set up shop in Israel. They had brought in their own soldiers to police Israel. And if you're a Jew living in Israel, you not only had to pay your taxes to Israel, but you also had to pay massive taxes to Rome. And you don't even like Rome. They're the empire who has come in. You know who a tax collector was? First, a tax collector was a Jew. Why do I say that? Because they were a sellout. A tax collector was a Jew who sold out their community. And they said, we will work for Rome, we'll side with Rome, we're going to get big bucks from Rome. And so they sold out their brothers, they sold out their neighbors, they sold out their community, and they're collecting taxes for Rome from their fellow Jews. Secondly, they were thieves. They were known to be thieves, and as a matter of fact, Rome expected it. 
That was how they made their money. So they would come and they would say, okay, uh, you just brought in your fish, you got to owe your taxes, one fish for Israel, one fish for Rome, one fish for me, one fish, one fish for me. And they would pad their pockets through just simply charging more than they needed to actually charge. And they could charge what, whatever they wanted, and they could get away with it. They were sellouts, and they were thieves. Who were the Pharisees? Pharisees were the loyal folks. They, they were the faithful. Pharisees were the ones who wanted to fight for the rights of their community. Pharisees were the ones who understood that Rome has uh, br brought oppression against Israel, and the Pharisees wanted to stand up and say, this is wrong. They wanted to look the tax collector in the eye and say, how could you do this to the people of God? How could you sell us out like this? And now, here comes Jesus. And Jesus is calling all who have ears to hear, let them hear. And who is it that's surrounding Jesus? Tax collectors. You see why the Pharisees felt a certain way? It's easy to say, I'm not a Pharisee. Until we remember who Pharisees actually are. And we start to realize, I might be a Pharisee. I might at least have Pharisaic tendencies. So here these tax collectors come around Jesus and the Pharisees are upset about this. And in verse 2, they say, who is this man that receives sinners and eats with them? How can he, Jesus, go about this kind of behavior and be so cool, so chummy with these people who are so against us? Here's the question for Pharisees, the question I want to ask us this morning. Do you believe that you are more deserving because you've been more faithful? Does your faithfulness before God over the past 15 minutes or 15 years in some ways make you more deserving of God than someone else who has not been faithful. What we have to understand is what heaven celebrates. Let's look at these three parables. This is the way that Jesus answers the Pharisaic problem. What does heaven celebrate? Well, the answer is simply this. I'm going to show it to you in three different ways. The answer is heaven celebrates one sinner who repents. One. It takes one sinner to repent, and that is the celebration of heaven. There was a, I, I heard a, or I read a inspirational speaker who was talking about how we should celebrate everything, and he said his wife told him it's trash day tomorrow. Don't forget it's trash day tomorrow. And he said, oh, wow, so that makes today trash eve. We should celebrate. What can we do to celebrate? And that's nice. But celebration is defined as an action of marking one's pleasure at an import, important occasion. Uh, uh, an action that marks my pleasure at something that I deem to be important. So, Meaning, if we celebrate everything, we celebrate nothing because nothing is important, right? So we have to actually think about what do we celebrate and why do we celebrate. What we celebrate determines, or shows rather, what we believe to be important. Uh, we, uh, 
the, the little babies in the church yesterday got together for a little celebration for Nyla, and, and that is a way to mark the importance of one year on this planet. What we celebrate shows what we find important, and while we were at the celebration, by the way, uh, Jamie was there, and Montrell said, hey, everybody, uh, today's Jamie's birthday, and, and so we took a moment to mark the importance of her birthday. Do you see what I'm saying? And so a, a way, when you celebrate with somebody, when you join in a party, when you show up at the, at the uh, meal to have this celebration, you are joining in a marking of what you believe to be important. So in, so in other words, also be careful what you celebrate. What does heaven celebrate? Well, three parables. The first parable is a lost a parable of a lost sheep. In verse 4, we see this man who has, a, he's a shepherd and he has a hundred sheep. And he loses one of them. How many sheep are left? Mathematicians? 99. What shepherd, he said, would not leave the 99? to go find that one sheep that he has lost. And when he finds that sheep in verse 6, look at the text, he celebrates. He gets together his friends and his neighbors to celebrate. The point of this first parable is in verse 7, which says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner. Everybody say, one sinner. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He goes on, and he immediately tells a second parable. The second parable is a mirror of the first parable. He just kind of changes out uh, uh, some, some actors. Instead of uh, a shepherd, where we have a, a woman, probably a poor woman. She has 10 coins, and she loses one coin in verses 8 through 10. What woman, if she loses one of these coins, he says, would not leave the lights on and sweep the floors until she finds that lost coin. And when she finds it, in verse 9, same thing happens. She calls her friends up, she shouts out to the streets and calls her neighbors, and she says, hey everybody, you've been praying for me, I found the coin, come and celebrate. And they come and they celebrate the finding of the lost coin, and they ask her if she could buy them some food, since she found her money. Look at verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The idea that God welcomes sinners was a common idea in Judaism at the time for the Jewish people. The rabbis whether they liked it or not, they would teach that God welcomes the repentant sinner. As a matter of fact, even Jesus, they see here in verse 2, he's receiving these sinners. And that fits within their known theology that God would welcome the sinner. What Jesus is showing that's new, however, is that not only will God welcome sinners, but God is a seeking God. God seeks after sinners. 
So in verse 2, when, when uh, they, they question who, what kind of man is this who receives sinners, Jesus is kind of turning that around, and in, uh, through a matter of a couple parables, he's saying, not only do I receive sinners, but I've been seeking the tax collector. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we're going to get there in a few weeks. It's talking about Jesus. And it, and it says, the Son of Man came to welcome the sinner. Not only that. Luke 19, 10 says, the Son of Man, a reference for Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. This goes all the way back to the beginning of our story. When Adam and Eve fell, when they took that fruit, and when they sinned, did they go seeking after God? Did they come up to God's door and say, we are so sorry. Please open for us. We've already apologized. No. Those of you that are Bible scholars, what did Adam and Eve do? They covered up and they hid from God. You can't hide from God. But God plays along with it. Where are you? Adam. <laughs> I remember when Jaden was little, she was playing hide-and-go-seek with my dad, and Jaden was underneath the table like this. Her face was covered, but the whole backside of her body was out, and my dad was going all around her. Jaden, where are you? That just popped in my head. That was a free little illustration for you. And so God then, he, he finds Adam and Eve, right? Yeah. What was God doing? Did God wait for them to come to him? No, God seeks the sinner. He seeks us. Which one of you would be here today if God had not sought you? When we come to Christ, church, we don't come ready. When we come to God, it's because God came to us. He sought us. He bought us with His redemptive blood. God is a seeking God. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, I wonder if you've ever considered the fact that God might be seeking you. Like, why, why did you come this morning? How did you get that thought in your mind? Who invited you? As you may have heard someone explain the good news of Jesus to you, have you wondered why God keeps putting Jesus in front of your face? Is it possible that God has been seeking you? or saints in the room, Christians. We seek after so many things in life, don't we? We seek after money. We seek after pleasure. We seek after success. We seek after status. Can we just pause for a moment and remember that God sought us while we were seeking everything else to take His place? 
Even now, as blood-bought citizens, and we forget, and we daily are on this grind trying to seek some kind of pleasure, some kind of happiness, something to satisfy us, can we remember that God sought us? And He is enough. He is all that we need. Oh, and it goes on. In turn, God uses us to seek others. Christ commissioned the church go into all of the world and make disciples. And then Jesus left. Sent us the Holy Spirit to give us the power to be witnesses of Him in this lost and dying world. How does God seek sinners today? It's through you. It's through you. I mean, think of it. The way that God sought you was through somebody else. Somebody told you about Jesus. Somebody at some point called you to respond to Jesus. God sought you. He seeks others through you. We are the hands and feet of Christ. And so wherever you live on your block, you're there to seek others. Your family members that don't know Jesus, you're, are you seeking them? Is God seeking them through you? Friends of yours. Or maybe various events and evangelistic opportunities uh, that, that, you, that you participate in. Do you realize that, that God is seeking others through you? Which means we need to be very well versed at sharing the Gospel with people. What a shame it would be to live my whole life seeking sinners and I never actually get to sharing the Gospel with them. It should be on the forefront of our minds. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We seek the lost as we proclaim the good news of Jesus, how to be saved. And not just in your circles, and not just through this church, and not just here in Baltimore, but God is seeking the unreached throughout the world. Now, we're not all going to go throughout the world, but we can pray for those who do. This isn't just a plug for Sunday evening service, but tonight, one of the things we do at every evening prayer service is we take some time to pray for unreached people groups, for those who don't have gospel preaching churches nearby, that, that there would be those who go to them, that God would soften their hearts. Tonight we're going to pray for the Nyungwe of Mozambique, the Danes of Denmark, the Kabul people of Afghanistan. People for whom they're, they're, you're just not going to find a gospel preaching church anywhere near them. God is seeking and saving not just Americans. Not just people of our own ethnicity. Not just people of our own common interests or background. But He's seeking and saving people all over the world. People that you would know nothing of. From the rich to the poorest of the poor, God is seeking to save the lost and He uses us in doing so. There's a third parable here. In the Bible, whenever you see a, 
a, a triad or three things in a row. The third is usually the most important. It's kind of the way the Jews would tell stories and the way that they would teach. Uh, there's an escalation of importance with each one. And so we get to this third parable, and we could say this third parable then is the most important. And scholars say that this parable is the finest of all parables that Jesus taught. We've seen the lost sheep. We've seen the lost coin. Now we're going to see a parable of the lost son. Verses 11 through 32. Verse 11 and 12, and he said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. That's how the parable starts. The younger son wants his inheritance. And he takes it. It's uh, soon to be seen why he wants it. The father doesn't know right off the bat. The son doesn't tell him why he wants his money. But it's quickly seen in the next verse that the son wants to spend his inheritance in various ways that would satisfy his sinful fleshly desires. And so he goes out and he does just that. We find out later in verse 30 that a big portion of that money went to prostitutes. Now, two events lead to the son's downfall. Number one, in verse 14, he spent everything that he had. He was out of money. I don't know if you've ever fallen into a good bit of money, but it goes quick, doesn't it? You think, oh man, we just got this big tax return. We can eat, drink, and be merry for five minutes. <laughs> that was it. It's already gone. It goes quick, especially when you are chasing after sinful desire because sin is very expensive. I'm telling you. Sin is very expensive. He spends everything that he has. And there's a second event, and that is actually out of his control. There's a famine that comes in the land. You know, a lot of times when we are reckless and we hit rock bottom, a lot of times when we ruin ourselves, it's because of our own fault and something that is not necessarily our fault. It is the fact that I was foolish and spent everything and there was some natural disaster that came and really ruined me. Meaning, I did not prepare. I did not use wisdom with my finances. Not only was I sinful, I didn't use wisdom with my finances and prepare for the possibility of a famine. You, it would be interesting, actually, to, to sort of parallel the younger son with the story of Joseph. Joseph also had a famine in his life. But walking in wisdom... Joseph led an entire nation to prepare well for that natural disaster. 
This younger son spends all of his money on reckless living, and there is a famine in the land, and I think it just shows us that he is absolutely ruined. There's nobody that can come to help him. So he gets a job in verse 15, feeding pigs. Now, if you know the book of Leviticus, particularly the 11th chapter and the 7th verse, what you know is that pigs for the Jewish people are unclean animals. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong working with pigs. I don't think there's many of us who would say, my life goal is to work with pigs. It just doesn't sound like an appealing job. No offense if you work with pigs. Since you live in Baltimore, I doubt you do, but it's possible. You might say, I live with pigs. That's between you and your roommates. But I don't think we want to, but beyond that though, there's this issue of it being unclean. Meaning not only is it a dirty job, it is a spiritually dirty job for the Jews. You are not fit to be touched. You are not fit to come into the temple. You are not fit to be welcomed into Jewish society because you are unclean. This picture of the younger son working with pigs just is to show us how far he had fallen from his lineage. How far he had fallen from the hope of his people. How far he had fallen from his father. And not only that, but in verse 16, we are reminded that there was a famine in the land and there's nobody to help him. He's starving. He's working with pigs. He's evidently underpaid because he's hungry and he's longing to be fed with the pods that the, figs, the pigs ate. Just, let's just stop and pause for a moment. He had a wealthy father. He had life in his father's household. But he said, I would rather be eating with the pigs than go home to my father. Even now, he refuses to turn back. This is a prodigal. This is someone who has fallen not just into their desires, but their desires has taken over their heart and they hate God. But there's nobody that can help them. Now the story turns quickly and I, I love it. I love this parable. There is something about hitting rock bottom that is a, is a strange grace. Listen, Sin will destroy you. I just want you to know that. All right? Whatever sin you're flirting with right now, give it some time. It will destroy you. Sin will rob you of your money. Sin will take away your job. Sin will take away your family. Sin will take away your health. Sin it looks amazing. It looks so alluring. It will, church, it will destroy you. If somebody ever confronts you of your sin, I want you to say thank you. Don't ever say, why are you going to judge me like that? 
Don't ever say, why are you prying into my business like that? So I want you to say, I want you to get, get before and say, thank you for confronting me of my sin. Oh, they love you. Otherwise, they wouldn't have confronted you. It, is, it will destroy you. We talk about hitting rock bottom. You know, the imagery of rock bottom is like there's a bottom that's made of rock. Does that make sense? <laughs> like you're kind of sinking, 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 and all of a sudden you hit rock bottom. Let me say this. I just knocked off my mic. There's, there's no rock bottom to sin. You find somebody and you say, oh man, they've hit rock bottom. If they're still alive, they can go farther. If right now you feel like because of your sin you've hit rock bottom, let me tell you, you haven't even found the bottom yet. You can, you can continue to sink further. That's the picture that we have in this passage. But here's the strange grace about it. Look at the next verse. Verse 17. But when he came to himself. That, that phrase would be uh, similar to the phrase that we use today. He came to his senses. This, I think, is his conversion. When he woke up. He woke up. When he looked at his life, and all of a sudden he realized how far he had fallen, and he came to himself, what does he determine? He goes on and he says, oh, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? I perish here with hunger. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. The young man determines to go home. And as we go on in this parable, we see what I want to call true repentance. Three things. Number one, the man takes responsibility for himself. In verse 18, he says, I have sinned. You are not repentant if you haven't taken responsibility for your sin. If you're going to say, yeah, it sucks, I hate it, I don't like it, but somebody else is at fault for my sin, friend, you're not repentant. You must take responsibility for your sin. I must take responsibility for my sin. I'm in this with you. I have sinned. Secondly, he sees himself as utterly unworthy. In verse 19, he says, I am no longer worthy to be called a son. It's, it's strange. It's strange. But in order for us to be made worthy in the kingdom of God, we have to come as one who is absolutely unworthy. If we believe that we are in some way worthy of God's love, then we are not yet ready to enter into the kingdom. We come as one who says, I'm unworthy. I take responsibility for my sin. I'm unworthy. And thirdly, he makes no demands. When he, what he determines, and he follows through with all of this stuff, in verse 19, he determines when he shows up, he's going to say, let me just be a servant. 
He's not making a demand back into sonship. He's not saying, hey, I, I made some mistakes, I lost it all, give me another share. Give me some more inheritance. Give me the fattened calf. Give me a, a, a beautiful ring. To, he's not making any demands. And in, in the story, he doesn't even expect anything of the Father. Takes responsibility. He believes to be utterly unworthy. And he makes no demands. True repentance. In verse 20, we see the Father's response. And this is what makes the story so great. When the Father sees the Son a long way off, the Father has compassion. And he runs and embraces the Son. And he kisses him. By the way, the Son is unclean. He's just been working with pigs. And the Father says, come home. You are my Son. And He restores Him fully into the fellowship of His family. Now before we go on, and I want to apply this, but I've got to touch on the turn in this story. There's a quick turn. Luke's intention is not actually to get us to focus on the prodigal son, as important as that is. But remember, what incident is, has, is Jesus responding to in these three parables? It's the issue of tax collectors, sinners coming to Jesus, and the Pharisees sitting like this. How dare they? How dare he respond? How dare he celebrate with? How dare he eat with them? Jesus is getting at something a little deeper here. And he says, there was another son. He's been in the story. In verse 11, there were two sons. Remember? In, according to the custom of their day, the younger son would take one-third of the father's inheritance. The older son would receive two-thirds of the father's inheritance. So the older son already is receiving more than the younger son. The older son, instead of living a, a crazy life and spending all of his money, the older son has stayed home. He's done the right thing. He sought to obey the Father. Well, in verse 25, the older son hears music and dancing. And he wonders to himself, what in the world is going on? And so he asks one of the servant, servants in verse 27. The servant says, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. How would you respond? This is sort of the climax of the story. How are you going to respond? Are you going to join in the celebration? Or are you going to refuse to celebrate what heaven celebrates? John Ortberg once said, one of the hardest things in the world is to stop being the prodigal son without turning into the elder brother. Did you, did you get that? Let me read that again. Because some of you weren't listening and then you heard everybody go, mm. and you're like, 
What did he say? Ready? One of the hardest things in the world is to stop being the prodigal son without turning into the elder brother. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. Let's just take a moment and let's compare the younger son and the older brother. The younger son saw himself in his repentance as utterly unworthy. The older son saw himself as worthy. In verse 29, he says, I have served you. I'm worthy of this. I'm worthy of your things. The younger son saw himself as absolutely undeserving, whereas the older son saw himself as entitled. Verse 29, he says, you never gave me a young goat. That's how he said it. (laughs) But you took the fattest goat and gave it to this guy. The younger brother took responsibility for his sin and he said, I have sinned. The older son, in verse 29, says this, I have never disobeyed your command. Bull. I'm going to call him out. (laughs) I know you've disobeyed his command at some point in your life. You're going to act like you've never disobeyed his command? There's no sense of guilt. There's no sense of of a need for uh, uh, an apology. There's no sense. It's just simply a me, what I deserve because of my faithfulness, and I've done the right thing. And look at the exchange. In verse 30, 31 and 32, he says, but when this son of, this is the, young, the older brother talking, but when this son of yours came, the son of yours, he can't even say my brother. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Verse 31, and the father said to him, son, let's just pause right there. He calls him son. The father doesn't rebuke him. The father doesn't come hard on the older brother. The father, you're going to see, responds with compassion for the older as well as for the younger. And it begins with him recognizing that you are not my servant. You're not my slave. You're not my dog. You're my son. Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. Which literally would have been true because the two-thirds that remained was going to the older son. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, he corrects him. Your brother. You notice the change there? He wants this older son to realize that his other boy is not just a prodigal. He's not just a rebel. He's not just simply a fool. He's not someone who has hurt the family. He's not just simply someone who has taken advantage of me and everybody else. He's your brother. He was dead. You can't tell me the father was overlooking anything here. The father didn't just simply look the other way. 
He didn't just simply say, ah, sin is not a big deal. It's not a big deal that you squandered everything. He's not saying that. He's actually calling it death. The young man was dead. But there's a reason to celebrate. He's alive now. He was lost. And he's found. He's come home. And that's worth celebrating. Who am I in the story? Really, I think I'm both. I'm the younger and the older. I'm the prodigal and I'm the one who stayed home. Who are you in the story? Really, I think you guys are both. You're the prodigal, but you're also the older. Why do I say it? Because you're here, right? And the hardest thing in the world is, is, is to uh, be delivered from being the prodigal son and, and to not become like the older brother. Jesus speaks to both of us in this story. And so I want to just close with two questions of application, and that is number one. Number one, has heaven celebrated your repentance? Has heaven celebrated your repentance? A couple years ago, someone once uh, said, 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 nothing in my life is celebrated. Like, people who uh, uh, get married, they get celebrated. People who have babies, they, they get celebrated. Uh, people who get degrees, they have celebrated. I, I've got none of that stuff. There's nothing to celebrate in my life. I wonder if you ever feel that way. Like, I wonder if you ever feel like everybody's getting celebrated. And everybody always has something to celebrate, and your life is just kind of regular. Just going about your business. Nothing is celebrated. This is an application that has nothing to do with this text, but we should probably learn to celebrate people at all stages of life. Amen? Not just a certain kind of an individual. But secondly, even if you're not celebrated on this earth, can you agree with me that it would be wonderful to be celebrated in heaven? Can you agree with me that it would be better to have a celebration in heaven? than a celebration on earth. Can anybody say that you would give up every single celebration on this earth for one celebration in heaven? Do you understand that if you are a sinner and you turn from your sin, whether it's the first time as you turn in saving faith or it's the 100th time as you turn again, back to Christ, do you understand that there is a celebration in heaven when the prodigal comes home? I can never go back. That is one of the biggest lies Satan tells prodigals. I can never go back. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know I've been gone. I, I fell into some things. It's been so long. I don't think I could show, back up, show myself back up at church. I think I'd be too embarrassed. Like, I could never go back to those people. And so then we resolve, I'm just going to go back to God, just me and Jesus, and I'm going to stay away from His people. Listen, what if the younger son took that approach? And he said, I'm going to just go back to the father, but he's going to have to meet me halfway, and I don't want to have to deal with any of his people. I don't want to have to interact with all of the servants that know my story. 
I don't want to have to interact with my older brother who I know is pretty upset with me right now. I don't want to have to deal with that. So dad, hey, it's me. If you could meet me, I would love to reconcile. But I can't come back to your people. Don't you understand? Coming back to God is coming back to His people. To the body of Christ. Have you responded to the call of grace in your life to turn back and to come home. I love these two words. Welcome home. Welcome home. That, that should be the ethos of our church. Like when, when a prodigal comes back, when a sinner welcome home. Like we're not going to get too like crazy about you because I know you're just going to, you know, but welcome back. I'm so glad that you're here. Right back into community. Right back into fellowship. Right back into service. We, 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 we walk together. We, we serve together. Has heaven celebrated your repentance? And if you're not a Christian, you need to understand. The way that we can be celebrated is because Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins. In and of myself, there's nothing to celebrate. There's no way that I could come home to God on my own. Like I was talking about earlier, He sought us. How did He seek us? He sent Jesus Christ to live the life that I should have lived. Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect righteousness before God. Jesus Christ Himself being God took on the form of a servant and was faithful even to the point of the cross. On the cross... Jesus died for my sins. The payment that should have been the prodigals, the punishment that we deserve for squandering all that God has given us, that punishment was placed on the Christ. And we died with Christ. We died with Him. But there's a reason to celebrate. Because my son was dead and now he's alive. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He was the Son who died and came back. Jesus is the Savior who became the prodigal. So the prodigals can come home. He rose from the dead. And He called to all of us as prodigals and said, Come, Come to me. And a Christian says, I will arise and go to Jesus. And He will embrace me in His arms. We come by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Has heaven celebrated your repentance? Turn now. And as you turn to Christ, know that there are angels having a party in heaven on your behalf. The second point of application here is this. Do you celebrate what heaven celebrates? Do you celebrate what heaven celebrates? My, my daughter went to her first homecoming last night. And she did all right. She did all right. She came home on time. She said a boy looked at her and she ran the other way. She's at Poly. She went to the Poly City games. It's like a big deal if you're a Poly City 
Brad. I told Jaden, I said, Jaden, don't end up like the hills. <laughs> the hills, they're, they're all, they are so poly. And I said, I said, just, just be chill about it. Like, it's just your high school. And she said, I will be like the hills. <laughs> because Polly is the best. She's a freshman. She just started there. When she was trying to decide where to go to school, ironically, Eric's cousin, Tim, is a city grad. Look at that right there. He's got his sweatshirt on. Don't be like Tim either. Jaden said she had to get out of the game yesterday before she saw Tim, because um, Tim's on the other side. When Jaden uh, decided first she was going to go to City, Tim was celebrating. And then Jaden changes her mind and says she's going to Polly. And Tim was like, "Oh man, I'm just so disappointed. Like you, you you're a knight. You're a knight. You're, you've got everything. That, you're a knight." And. Uh, and then the hills start celebrating because she's going to Polly. Why is it that we celebrate when somebody loves what we love? Think about that. You're, you're a sports fan. And all of a sudden, you win another person to your team and you celebrate. You like a restaurant. You don't have any investment in this restaurant whatsoever. But somebody started, oh, I love Chick-fil-A too. Yes. <laughs> you celebrate. Why? As human beings, God has wired us. We're made in His image. This is a, this is a glimpse into who God is. When somebody loves what we love, we celebrate. What you celebrate shows what or who you love. So let me just apply this. If you're the older brother, and that person comes in who's hurt you, and they come back to Jesus, and they love Jesus, and you can't celebrate that, what that shows is that you don't love Jesus. You love your status. You love your job, your role, your title. You love your morality. But you don't love Jesus. Because if you love Jesus, you would celebrate when this person comes back to Jesus. It's just that simple. As the story, as the parable closes, Jesus leaves it open-ended. He doesn't actually tell us the older brother's response. The father bids him to come in. Please come in and celebrate. Your, son, uh, my, your brother, my son, was dead and now he's alive and Jesus leaves it hanging right there. And I think that's intentional. Because I think Jesus is looking at you and I think he's saying, you are the older brother. How is this going to go? Are you going to resist and show that you have no love for Jesus? Or are you going to join the party of heaven 
and celebrate every single individual who repents. Because you love Jesus. You know that hymn, Come Thou Fount, that we sing? That was written by a guy named Robert. You know these words, Come Thou Fount. Of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Those are good lyrics, aren't they? Sadly, as time went on, Robert, the guy that wrote that hymn, fell away. And he became the prodigal. Years later, he was on a stagecoach, sitting next to a, a woman who was reading some lyrics. And the woman just kind of randomly strikes up a conversation with Robert and she says, listen to, these, listen to these words. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That's amazing, isn't it? And Robert bursts out in tears. And he says, Madam, I am the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I could if I had them back to enjoy the feelings that I had back then. And the woman looked at Robert in his tear-filled eyes, and she said, the streams of mercy still flow. The streams of mercy still flow. I wonder who needs to hear that this morning. I am that man. I am that woman. I've made a mockery of everything. I, I could have been something. The people, uh, people know what I've done. They, I, I can't show my face again. I'm so ashamed by my life. If it was streams of mercy that began your spiritual walk, is it not streams of mercy that continue your spiritual walk 30 years later after you fell away and you're coming back to the Lord? Oh, we're saved by grace. By grace we are saved. And so we recognize, church, that whether we're the older or the younger, it's kind of blurry sometimes, isn't it? That we are a people that must be humble because we are in these streams of mercy. Robert turned back and he was fully restored to fellowship. Do you love the return of the prodigal? Jesus leaves the story open-ended. How are you going to respond? Will you come in? And will you celebrate what heaven celebrates? Amen? Pray with me, church. Father, we thank you for these three parables that are told by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And they do confront us in our pride, even our, our faithfulness, we recognize so much of that can be mixed with sinful desires. God, I pray that today the prodigal will come home. And I pray that the Pharisee that is in us will repent and will rejoice. And as we do so, God, I pray that we would recognize that we are all here because of your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.